Latitude Media, podcast at the frontier of climate technology. Where do either of you fall on the AI optimism spectrum? I just think that we're not as far along as everybody is worried that we are. I see the applications, especially in energy. Um, so optimism is my default setting. Well, I'm training your voices right now, and I'm going to replace you in the next episode. <laughs> so I'm just going to write the commentary, use your voices, and we'll see how optimistic you are. <laughs> data out means you got to put data in, buddy. <laughs> Can't replace either of you. <laughs> this is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Bidenomics, the AI revolution, electrify everything. These are more than just slogans. They represent real, physical changes to the world around us. As President Biden's green industrial policies reignite the U.S. manufacturing base, AI computing workloads soar, and machines across the economy turn electric, the power grid is facing an historic increase in demand. After almost two decades of flat electricity consumption, suddenly America's grid planners are doubling their forecasts for demand, raising the urgency for new infrastructure. We will ask this week what is needed and what happens if we can't build it. Then some major changes in the world of tax finance. We'll look at how transferable tax credits are opening up new kinds of deals for clean energy and take a deeper dive into the long-awaited and controversial details of hydrogen tax credits. Catherine Hamilton and Shalini Ramanathan are with me to talk about these trends coming right up. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. So it's the end of the month, and we're going to be doing something this year where monthly I bring two experts who are now familiar to you, Shalini Ramanathan and Catherine Hamilton, where we are going to recap some of the most influential stories playing out. And Catherine is the chair of 38 North. Hello, Catherine. Happy to be here again and happy this will be a regular gig. And Shalini Ramanathan is the director of origination at Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. Hello, Shalini. Welcome back. Hello. Good to be here. So we are going to talk about one of the big stories that uh, emerged in December and into this year, combining a couple different trends. Um, firstly, the IEA is out with a new analysis this month showing that global data center use could double in the next three years, and that's largely to AI and crypto. And there were a bunch of experts at Davos recently who were talking about this, and OpenAI uh, CEO Sam Altman, who's also an investor in Advanced Nuclear, said on stage that we need energy breakthroughs in order to power the computational demands of artificial intelligence. And in reality, the breakthroughs we need are probably less about technology and more about grid infrastructure planning, which we're going to get into. And a new report from Grid Strategies shows us why. Uh, Grid Strategies recently analyzed U.S. load growth and these five-year forecasts from grid planners on increased power demand. And it turns out that these forecasts 
nearly doubled since last year. That means 38 gigawatts in new demand could come online from a combination of data centers, new manufacturing facilities, and residential industrial electrification. And these forecasts don't actually take into account potential hydrogen production from electrolyzers that could be coming. So meeting that demand is going to require tens of billions of dollars in new transmission. But transmission investments among investor-owned utilities have actually declined in the last few years. And so that's causing this massive backlog of renewables and batteries, this terawatt-scale backlog that's just sitting in queues. So what does the end of flat power demand mean? Catherine, give us the historical context here. How long has electricity demand been flat in the U.S.? And why is this projection, this five-year doubling, so important and attention-grabbing? Yeah, so this is not the first rodeo for increased demand. Um, way back in the dark ages when air conditioning was invented, there was a significant increase in demand, and we had to build a lot more power plants in this country. And then from about 1975 to 2005, there was massive just economic growth. Um, that was when I was working at a utility for about 10 years designing grids, and we had to we certainly upgraded medium voltage power lines from like 4 kV to 20 kV so we could get more juice through. We did things like time of use, demand response. We even were even working on thermal energy storage to try to bring down demand so we could have time to build out more feeder lines and more substations. And then for about 20 years, it was really flat. And part of that was because we'd built out what we needed to. We had the systems in place that we needed. But we also did a ton on energy efficiency. So that was really able to manage a lot of the load growth and demand through appliance standards. All of the efficiency standards that we have have been incredibly helpful. But now it looks like things are changing again. And it's just like what you were talking about with these data centers, AI, manufacturing facilities, thanks in large part to a lot of the investment that the Inflation Reduction Act is creating here in this country, but also electrification. So now what do we have to do? I mean, this is significant because it looks like, and this is compared to so 0.5% annual demand growth over the last 20 years. Now it's 2.6% in 2022, and then in 2023, it was revised to 4.7%. So as you say, it's doubling. It is really significant. And so the question is, what do we do about that now? Yeah, so, I mean, we can see all the new manufacturing facilities getting built. We can see the data infrastructure needs increasing. And then we've been talking about Electrify Everything for years now. Shalini, does this load forecast, does this surprise you at all? I think it's an intensification of a trend we saw before. Uh, as Catherine mentioned, things like the electrification of transportation, right, have been underway for a while. So that was a predictable um, uptick in load. AI and the force of AI and how quickly the data demand of AI is becoming a topic of conversation and a real, a real you know, cause of uh, how quickly AI is uh, scaling up and um, how quickly data centers for AI need green power, that I think is, is new. And I think that it's worth remembering that this goes in cycles and this the high demand isn't all bad. I mean, a few years ago, I think probably seven years ago is the, the trough that there was a race to the bottom climate and power purchase agreements. And, you know, margins were, were not very exciting um, if you were doing solar or wind projects. And I think the, uh, the higher demand um, and the, the difficulty of getting projects done for 
all the reasons we've talked about on the show, you know, transmission and permitting and siting, um, does mean that prices are, are are more buoyant. So it is an interesting development that has, you know, all kinds of implications. Yeah, and Shalini, 33% of those global AI data centers are in the U.S., 16% in the EU and 10% China, but the United States has a vast majority of them. I th- let's pause on the data center piece for a second because I made this flippant remark in, the, in my opening remarks about Sam Altman saying we need to invest in new nuclear. Um, I don't think we really need any energy breakthroughs to serve these data centers, though. We just need a lot more transmission to get clean power to these data centers. And it's, I mean, it's an infrastructure challenge. Um, and there are a lot of ways that you can build more modular data centers that uh, directly connect to, you know, that, that are direct off-takers of renewable electricity. So there's ways that you can, and then you can create data centers that have specific workloads, like data centers with AI-specific workloads that can be cycled differently than other services on the internet. And so there are ways to adjust the output and comp- computational workloads of data centers, build them differently, and then just build the infrastructure around it, around it. We don't need some advanced nuclear breakthrough to serve this particular load. Yeah, I totally agree. I talked to Rob Gramlich from Grid Strategies that produced this report, and I said, what do we need to do, Rob? Help us fix this. And he said, we really need to plan for the future. We need to do much better planning. Over the last couple of decades, a lot of the planners just kind of the load forecasters, everything was sort of flat. We didn't have to be super creative. We have been super creative in the past, and we need to get that way in the future. So, Stephen, just as as you talk about the data centers and the sort of the the load side, the resor- and I consider that part of the resource mix, if you have customers with resources like solar and storage, um, that they could also be part of the solution. But when you think about what we need to plan for, you also have to look at how do we get every electron out of every line. Because our system has places that are, yes, congested, congested, but others that aren't. So how do we best use our system? How do we plan for the future? There are a lot of ways we can tackle this, and we really have to really put a lot of thought into this without having to come up with some kind of a new technology. And even if we got a new technology, why do we think it would be so easy to roll out? You know, we um, implementation, this is something I have learned the hard way is I think we all in in our field get excited about technology. I know I do. Um, And that is part of the puzzle. Technology is part of the puzzle. But commercializing technology, implementing projects to, you know, to to get it out there, that's going to be as hard for any new technology as it has been for wind and solar. So, you know, might as well try to solve it for wind and solar. Clearly, breakthroughs are not needed. Better management of the supporting infrastructure is needed. But that is a simple thing to say, not an easy thing to do. And so it's still a big concern that we can't actually build the transmission and distribution infrastructure to support this new load. Are either of you worried at all that we see 38 gigawatts of new potential demand coming and not a great plan to uh, connect the infrastructure to serve it? So Georgia Power has been one of the largest beneficiaries of the Inflation Reduction Act, $15.3 billion in investment in their service territory of um, EV manufacturing, solar, data centers, et cetera, 6,600 megawatts of new load coming online. And the issue is they are doing 
RFPs for new solar and batteries. But in the meantime, what do we have to do to sustain the demand? And they're looking at, well, are we going to need to keep some coal plants open in Mississippi and cut a deal to be able to use those as a bridge? Do we keep some of these single-cycle peaker units going for a bit longer um, until we can build out enough other infrastructure. And what you want them to do is say, until we can make sure we have enough renewables and storage on the grid to be able to accommodate that rather than, oh, let's instead try to build some more combined cycle units because those, of course, will have a 40-year lifespan and maybe the data centers won't. I think Catherine uh, nailed it is, you know, if if the if, if the demand isn't met with clean energy and if it isn't reasonably easy to meet it with clean energy, uh, I do worry that, you know, we'll revert to more polluting, a more polluting fuel stack just because it's easier to do. Um, and that would be a shame because we have an opportunity um, to to clean it up. Yeah, it sure would. And in the Southeast, uh, Catherine, I know you have been focused on this. There are a lot of new commitments to fossil gas plants. And what are we seeing in terms of new gas planning and how it's overshadowing renewables? Yeah, I think the issue is just that, yes, they're trying to do as much renewables as they can. They're very used to doing gas. Um, And we're talking about the Southeast. Like, what parts of the Southeast are we talking about? Yeah, so I was just talking about Georgia. Yeah. But there are a bunch of other states that are involved, too. So, like, there's a big deal in Mississippi with Entergy and Amazon where there is going to be a deal cut. It's basically going to let Energy do whatever it wants to do to supply Amazon with reliable power. And the thing is that the thought that a reliable power source is fossil gas is what's confounding because they are still reeling from Yuri and Elliot storms and the insecurities in the gas system, which have still not been addressed. So part of this is we got to fix that side of the equation, the supply side of the equation to make sure we meet the demand side. I see some of the biggest hangups of all in interconnection and actually being able to, Shalini, like you say, get renewables and storage on quickly because they're cheaper and faster to build and you can put them in a lot of different places that you can't build a you know, combined cycle natural gas plant. And if we can get that interconnection and we can make the planning processes work for it, that's going to resolve a lot of the issues. I think market reform also has a role to play here. Um, you know, the, the West is a lot of different RTOs, a lot of different, a lot of different ISOs, and uh, because of that, you know, you can't necessarily get power to where the demand is high, and it's. Uh, it's been a problem that we've been talking about for a long time. There's some new energy, I think, around fixing it, especially especially in the West. Uh, and it's a really important piece of the puzzle because where it is cheapest to generate renewable power may not be where it, it's most needed to be used, unless... Stephen, to your point, you're bringing in manufacturing, bringing in data centers um, to follow uh, the physical location of renewables. So market reform to use the existing, um, you know, mechanisms we have to deliver power, I think, is really important. Yeah, and independent system operators or regional transmission um, organizations are really helpful in that way because you are able to pull from a portfolio of resources and manage and plan accordingly. So there has been also a lot of energy, Shalini, in the Southeast on trying to make that a more organized market. And that would kind of feed into what you're saying. And thank you for defining the acronyms. (laughs) 
I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, Shalini, which is the co-location of these projects. And uh, I know that there are some developers that are thinking about different offtake strategies and and you know partnering with again um, data centers or manufacturing facilities. Like, are you seeing more of a co-location strategy for renewable energy projects and storage projects? It's certainly a very appealing concept. Um, There are some practical challenges, like what if you don't have the fiber infrastructure for a data center near where you have the renewables development? There's certainly no guarantee uh, they're all going to be in the same location. Workforce issues are also a concern. If you're if you have a manufacturing plant, you need people to work various jobs, and you know those people come with families and kids who need you know who need to go to school and um, spouses who have to find jobs. And if that and those may not exist in rural areas. I mean, you know, in many ways, it's a great opportunity, right, to to, to revitalize rural areas. Um, but if you're just one company trying to make that decision, you may find that um, all the factors are not, in fact, aligning. So we have underinvested in transmission distribution for decades. Um, we have seen outages increase. We have seen massive backlogs of clean energy projects. Um, The Biden administration has pulled together $30 billion for potential grid upgrades. Catherine, where are these dollars going to and how will they make an impact in the medium term? Like, when will they start making an impact? Yeah, first of all, there's an unprecedented attention that this administration is putting on transmission. So that is huge good news. Of the $30 billion, about $5 billion has been focused on new transmission lines. So much of this is on really the protocols, the rules, the processes, permitting. They established a grid deployment office at the Department of Energy. You know, there's a lot that's going on to try to get it set up. That certainly dwarfs the investment that we really need to build out. Um, FERC is also doing an interregional planning rule, which is really important to make sure, you know, as we have spoken before, that power is able to flow between regions and that the markets um, are set up to do so. That's supposed to come out in April, so we're watching for that. You know, but other than that, we also need so much on interconnection to make sure that we can get these these plants online, all of these, whether it's storage, any kind of renewables, um, also transmission. And one thing that fell out of the mix in the Inflation Reduction Act was an investment tax credit for transmission, which would reduce the cost of building these lines by 30%. So that, to me, was a huge miss. Um, You can't fix that just with good permitting policy. You really need to have investment. And I would think Shalini would have something to say about that, too, investing in infrastructure. Yeah. One of the things about investing in infrastructure is it really is a public-private process. You know, it isn't all something that a private entity can do. Um, There have been, like Sunzia recently reached, you know, a milestone that's moving forward. I think it's been... 15 years under development, like a really long time for, maybe not that long, but a long time for a private entity to take this on. So the, I am glad, I I agree with Catherine, the focus on this issue is great, but it feels like um, there aren't easy solutions. It is just a very technical um, discussion, and I hope we can keep our eye on that ball. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. 
That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com events or click the link in the show notes. Okay, let's talk about two important tax-related stories. We finance a lot of clean energy through the tax code in the U.S. That's how we've always done it. And there's a shift happening in the market right now, thanks to these new rules under the Inflation Reduction Act that allow tax credits to be transferable. And that just means that project owners can now sell tax credits for cash. And that is, so far, with about a half a year of real trading, uh, opening up the market to mid-sized deals that maybe wouldn't get financed or supported through complicated tax equity deals that the limited number of banks that have historically engaged with tax equity. Um, and the tax equity market is where banks with enough tax appetite, tax liability, it actually invest capital in projects and then they take advantage of the tax credits. And there are a lot of different structures uh, where the bank can partner with the project. Um, that market is was worth about $23 billion last year. And the market for transferable tax credits, where a lot more companies can buy these credits, was somewhere in the 7 to $9 billion range last year, according to this new market analysis from Crux. So that's actually growth that's a lot faster than people expected. Um, it could help bring the value of tax financing of clean energy to $50 billion by the end of the decade. And so the big question is, what does this mean for the way we deploy capital? Um, we also have this really important story on the tax credit side. We, we now have guidance on the 45V tax credit for hydrogen production. This is like a really hot story in energy right now. We alluded to it at the end of the year. And, and then in December, we got more details. And so it looks like the government is going to create rules that will ensure uh, coming hydrogen production is as clean as possible. But as we'll hear, it is potentially stalling the market. And um, there's a real debate over uh, how stringent these rules need to be and how much hydrogen and, and whether they'll hold back hydrogen production. And um, we're going to talk about that now. First, let's talk about these Treasury rules. Shalini, what did Treasury propose about how these hydrogen tax credits should work? So this guidance has been hotly anticipated. As you said, it came out uh, near the end of last year, right before Christmas, I think. That's my memory of it. And uh, it's described as having three pillars. So, um, and, and this all goes to what a project has to do to qualify for the, um, the highest amount um, of the hydrogen production tax credit. The most you can get is $3 a kilogram. And for to do that, you have to be emitting less than 0.45 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. Um, so it 
you know, that's it's a high bar. And if you hit, if you aren't quite that clean, then you get, um, you can still qualify for the PTC, but you may not get the full $3 a kg. So the three pillars to get you to, um, you know, that, that higher um, PTC amount that you definitely want to get um, are additionality. So clean energy resources um, have to begin operation within three years of the hydrogen plant um, be- being operational so that you're actually incenting new generation and not just um, using the renewables that are already built and maybe taking it away from a data center. (laughs) Um, uh, The second pillar is deliverability. So the clean energy resource has to be in the same region um, as as the green hydrogen project. And that's to prevent... Uh, actors from just buying, overbuying in one market and then kind of spilling that power on the grid where it isn't really used and then using dirty grid power where where their project is located. So that's the logic. Um, The third one is hourly matching. And that uh, requires that an hour of electrolyzer electrolyzer use, production of hydrogen, that hour, specific hour, must be matched with an hour of green power production. It it can't just, you can't just say that, you know, um, on the aggregate over a year with annual matching, you can say, look, we've purchased as much green power, using as much green power in the aggregate annually as we did um, overall. This is really holding to a tighter standard, which is that you have to match it per hour. Okay, so there were a coalition of folks who were pushing for these more stringent requirements. Catherine, did they get what they were asking? Why does this matter? Um, explain like the, the the controversy and lobbying leading up to this and then what the outcome was relative to what folks wanted. Yeah, so the three pillars were not in the law. The law just stipulated that it had to be, you know, very, very low emission. But this was how they thought this is the best way to implement this. This is the... You know, Jesse Jenkins has spent a lot of time thinking about this. Other folks have looked at, you know, what would this look like? What would those three pillars look like? And so in that regard, yes, they they won. I mean, this is this is going to make sure that you're getting you're not getting blue hydrogen uh, qualifying for three dollars a kilogram credit when it costs only one to two dollars a kilogram to produce it. So um, that's that's a good thing for really spurring new renewables, for spurring clean electrolysis, for making sure that this doesn't just keep uh, you know natural gas from continuing to produce hydrogen. So so the the hydrogen producers are really glad for this. So Electric 2, Air Products, um, EDP Renew was on board with this, steel producers, Maersk. I mean, a lot of folks who are trying to get to net zero are really happy about this. On the other hand, there are a lot of folks that are not happy about it. And I would say um, Nextera, Constellation, BP, Exxon, Plug Power, which is an electrolysis manufacturer, a lot of those folks are not happy with these rules um, for a bunch of different reasons. But part of which is what this would do is it would, would not allow for um, existing renewable facilities. And I would say, especially something like hydropower, um, that would be able to be used more effectively, or there may even be other ones that are not at their full capacity factor, that you'd be able to still allow the electrolyzer production to be um, clean, but 
you know, isn't stipulated in these three pillars. That said, it does look like there could be a 5% carve-out potential for existing resources, so we'll kind of see how that turns out. They are taking comments now. The Treasury Department is taking comments until the end of February, and I'm guessing they're going to get a lot of comments, (laughs) and then they will have to decide, what does this mean? Are we going to keep the three pillars as they are? I suspect they will. I suspect that they will simply come up with ways in which you can use existing resources resources at certain times to be able to qualify so that you really are getting clean green hydrogen um, and you're not leaving plants that are that aren't really at their full capacity out there on the grid you know being less than useful well Shalini there's no better person to ask than you about what the potential impact out in the market could be I know you're evaluating a lot of deals and this guidance potentially freezes some of them or makes them more complicated. So tell me about how this could play into the numbers behind some of the hydrogen projects you're evaluating. Yeah, as Catherine described, this is a uh, a topic that people have many, you know, lots of different views on, including with, with, with my colleagues, right? It's not like we all have the, the, the same perspective on it. So I'll give you my view, which is most of the projects that I have looked at have assumed grid power plus RECs um, for, you know, for the first wave of projects. And everyone wants to do better, but the, but the projects have said, look, in order to, uh, to achieve a decent uh, rate of return, this is, this is what we can do. And I will point out that um, data centers and tech companies, there are now some tech companies that very prominently um, are focused on hourly matching, right? Every hour that um, of, of, of data center use is matched to an hour of green production. They weren't doing that at the beginning. Uh, When we first started working on corporate PPAs, it was much more, you know, just annual matching. You know, you use this much power, you're offsetting it by signing um, PPAs for a similar amount. So from my perspective, and again, you know, even my colleagues um, may have different views. From my perspective, what we're doing is increasing the bar for hydrogen to be to be clean in a way that data centers and electric vehicles, right? It's not like when I bought my EV, I could, I mean, I do charge it overnight with, you know, Texas wind power, but it's not like I was limited to doing that um, in a way that, um, you know, that uh, affected the, it's a in EV's utility. So I think it's going to be challenging for a lot of projects. There are going to be some, you know, some people who can, who can absolutely achieve those goals. And, and I think you can see, um, you know, you can see that how the market is divided by, you know, the kind of power plans, the green power strategies uh, that companies have. But I do worry that it will make um, a lot of this, you know, the projects that I'm looking at that are not necessarily associated with a large renewable IPP, um, you know, hard, hard, tough, tough to make to move forward. It's going to make a lot of those projects that I'm looking at um, tough to pencil. I'll point out one other thing about green hydrogen, which is there's been a lot of hype around it, and the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act are supply side. They are not stimulating demand. Um, they are providing tools in the IRA to reduce the the price of green hydrogen, which we've just been talking about. But they haven't said um, that you know they haven't in any way pushed anyone to use this you know a, a product with a lower environmental um, impact. And a lot of the domestic 
users of green hydrogen are companies like chemical refineries, oil and gas companies. Fertilizer is a big one because you can make green ammonia with green hydrogen and, you know, and, and, and ammonia is a key part of, of fertilizer production. And so the challenge there is those are industries that maybe are not um, as focused on decarbonization as more consumer-facing industries. And so how are you going to convince um you know, a, a, a client, a, a customer to pay an even greater premium than you had to before the guidance came out. So look, lots of different perspectives. And I certainly agree with the goal of cleaning the, you know, the production of hydrogen, but I was hoping for maybe a more nuanced baby step approach. I'll also point out one more thing um, that the demand for green power, for which we started talking about the demand for power period, um, also hurts the cause of green hydrogen. Because if you are a wind developer, um, who are you going to sign a power purchase agreement with? A tech company that wants it for a data center or a new industry like green hydrogen? So it's another barrier that I think has been put in green hydrogen's path. Yeah, so uh, comments are due in February from any stakeholder who wants to submit comments, and then they'll take some period of time to, you know, come up with the final rulemaking, and then, then it'll move forward. They'll create the tax forms and we'll move ahead. Okay. Well, we'll follow up on that when we get more details. And let's turn now to this bigger shift in um, tax financing on why transferable tax credits matter. Um, Shalini, over to you. I mean, I know you're not specifically working on tax finance, but you have a team that does. And are you seeing any shift in the way deals are getting done or evaluated because of the way tax credits are now structured? So we're you know, uh, I think everyone, this is uh, across the industry, uh, I think we're all excited that the um, the market has come together. Uh, transferable tax credits are new. And, um, you know, it was, it was really impossible to know how long it was going to take for companies beyond the current pool to, to decide they wanted to play um, in, in this new area. So it's really very encouraging that there, there is demand for tax credits and there are companies willing to get involved that previously hadn't done it. Um, having said that, the, um, the mechanism is still the same, which is you, there's still a lot of due diligence on projects. And um, I do think that, and this is very, it's very early days, and it's been very encouraging in these early days. Um, but, you know, we do have to get these big renewables projects financed. And it's it seems like right now there's uh, the, the it's easier to move forward with smaller projects. You know, just the risk is the risk is less. You need fewer fewer entities involved. So I'll be curious to see if uh, the market continues to develop. But look, the de- the demand is encouraging. Uh, the deals that have been announced are encouraging. And fr- frankly, the, the the amount of value that projects are getting to keep, which is really a, a sign of of how much demand there is. I.e., everyone's not chasing one new. Uh, um, tax equity provider, um, you know that 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 value has been high. So it's it's a good it's a good moment. <laughs> Catherine, you have uh, lived in the tax code for a long time. I felt like every couple of years we would have a big show at the end of the year and say like, ah, oh, we got a tax package done. And so you have seen uh, uh, the 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 boom and bust cycles on the policy side and in the market side as we've. Um, as tax credits have phased out, and then we've passed extensions, and then the creation of these 10-year tax credits that are now transferable and sellable for cash is a really big deal. Um, What did you expect to come out of this shift, and did you expect it to ramp up as quickly as it did? Yeah, so 
everybody wanted it to ramp up and everybody just started investing like crazy, right? Oh, that's why we're getting all of these demand scenarios with all this manufacturing. You know, everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. The issue is you still need a lot of guidance written because a lot of this has never had tax credits before and they're also structured differently. So you had domestic content that they had to figure out. They have um, a, a bonus credit for wages and apprenticeships. And that's like a little bit gnarly. Some some of these are self-reporting. Um, so that will be helpful that companies will be able to self-report. Others have, other of these credits have um, platforms that you have to apply for, um, one of which is this the low-income adder. So that's for low-income rooftop, community solar, you know, multifamily solar, and tribal uh, projects. And you have to apply. There's a you know, it's only a 1.8 uh, gigawatt uh, limit for these projects. And those are a lot of them are already claimed. They've already uh, had all of the applications filled. So there is just a huge amount of pent-up interest. And so, yes, it is it is going like gangbusters. One thing to keep in mind, at the end of 2024, that would be this year, there are a few credits that do not continue, including the microgrid tax credit, the concentrated solar tax credit. Now, storage continues, uh, solar and wind continue, most of the renewables continue, but some of them don't because what they ended up doing was only having credits through the end of 2024. And then in 2025, they become what's called tech neutral. It's not really tech neutral. It just means that it's pegged to emission reduction um, rather than being technology specific. But some of those technologies didn't make it into the mix. And so there are a lot of things that we're going to need to do this year. One is to figure out how do you get some of those to continue because they haven't even finalized the microgrid credit rules. You can't even start putting any equipment into or projects into safe harbor before this thing is going to expire. And then in 2025, they have to set up a totally different system for the tax credit to be able to be administered. So Treasury is trying to get all those final guidance out for all the different technologies that are going to expire pretty quickly. And then they also need to set up for 2025 to make sure that when we flip the switch and the new year comes, that you'll be able to take advantage of a different tax structure. So I am very focused on what does all that look like? How do we get some of these things over the finish line? How do you get something like the transmission credit over the finish line that wasn't ever there? Um, and so that's, and, and other little fixes in the in the code that the Inflation Reduction Act um, put into place that, you know, there were just some things that technically weren't quite right. Like, how do you get those little fixes done? So that's going to take some work over the next year to make sure we're all set up to go because there's still a lot out there that is a little bit uncertain. The 45Z in the IRA is uh, includes sustainable aviation fuel, and that expires in 2027, which is just not very far away, especially given that that is a a new product that um, we're still trying, you know, the industry is still trying to figure out. So um, seconding uh, Catherine's comment that, you know, this is, there's a, a lot of short timelines and long processes. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that one too. That's another one we'll have to put into the mix of things we have to get done in the next year or two. Yeah, so along with some of that policy uncertainty and additional guidance, there's also a little bit of uncertainty in the market too. So you have buyers, new buyers of tax credits that are 
coming in and a little bit nervous about the diligence process, about how much they have to pay for insurance. And so it makes, you know, intermediaries pretty important in the market. And then, you know, sellers are obviously worried about pricing. Um, they they want to make sure that they're getting good pricing and have price transparency on the platforms that are selling these credits. And so, you know, you, you still have a lot of buyers that are sitting on the sidelines and um, obviously more sellers participating in the market because they want to sell their credits um, and expand their facilities. So with that said, we are seeing some new interesting deals. Um, most recently, there was this $700 million sale of 45X tax credits by First Solar. And um, our team at Latitude Media has been digging into this a little bit. And we just released a recent story. We went around and talked to some manufacturers. And many of them are saying that they're thinking about expanding because of the prospect of being able to sell these credits. Um, one Canadian solar manufacturer, Haleine, said it's committed 800 megawatts of manufacturing capacity to the U.S. and 500 more megawatts in Minnesota in 2024. And that Specific investment was motivated by the ability to sell 45x tax credits. So, this is having an impact on new kinds of investment in facilities. Um, and in that report that I mentioned, written by Crux, where they interviewed like 150 market participants, buyers, sellers, uh, intermediaries. Um, they did find that deal sizes were much, much lower than traditional tax equity. And they were, um, and although they were mostly wind and solar deals, you do see them um, across uh, bioenergy uh, and in manufacturing, uh, advanced manufacturing. And so the market is starting to diversify in terms of deal type and uh, deal size. So some really interesting changes there. You know, you make a really good point that there, the differentiation in the market might mean there are some technologies, some kinds of projects that, for, you know, maybe seem too complicated to understand or the risk profile isn't what new tax equity providers are comfortable with. And so that's a, a new element, right? Um, because we do have all these, uh, as, as Catherine laid out, all the different kinds of credits, like manufacturing credits that, you know, and, and the domestic content and all that. Um, and yet, um, you know, if the market isn't there to invest to, to invest um, in that from a tax equity perspective, then you know the the value of those credits is diminished. So TBD. Yeah, so we're going to be reporting on um, how these deals are structured. There's certainly going to be hybrid deals as well with traditional tax equity players that are combining uh, some of these transferable credits with uh, traditional tax equity deals. Um, and I, I, we'll see lots of that. And uh, we're going to be covering how that's evolving at Latitude. And, and actually, we're recording this on a Tuesday. Um, on Wednesday, I'll actually be sitting down with um, Crux CEO Alfred Johnson, and we're going to walk through that report, and we'll talk about pricing and why some of the hesitations among buyers and sellers, um, what's to come in 2024. So that'll be an interesting conversation. It'll probably already be done by the time this episode comes out, but we will be distributing it on the pod afterwards. So stay tuned for that conversation. We're going to dig into a bunch of different market forces. And with that, we're going to end with the forecast. This is where we briefly talk about a story or an observation that tells us something about the near or distant future. Catherine, what do you have? Yeah, so how many TV streaming services do you think you have? 
Do you know, Stephen, how many you have? Um, well, I'm constantly like kind of cycling them through, you know, canceling them, deciding that I don't use it, <laughs> then seeing a show I like and and then uh, resubscribing. I would say five. Oh, that's good. Shalini, how about you? I think between four to five, I'm going through them in my head. But at, at various points, the high tide has been like, you know, like seven. Right? Yeah, yeah. So. I feel like it's infinite. It's like, oh, I have to see Project One Let Runway. So that means I have to subscribe to Hulu. It's like that's the kind of thing we're in. Well, I just I, I'm saying this because, you know, we, we sign up for streaming services kind of willy nilly, I would say, because we want to see something or at least, you know, I find myself doing that. But reporting is really different. And I'm I'm just really saddened by a lot of the stories about um, media outlets, press, news outlets um, laying off reporters. Um, the LA Times laid off 20% of its newsroom. Um, certainly the Post had like 240 reporters that took buyouts uh, before the end of the new year. Um, the Baltimore Sun was bought by kind of this right-wing Sinclair guy who's going to kind of change the tone. So I... I'm disheartened by the fact that a lot of these newsrooms are really having trouble. Um, a lot of community papers, it's something like five local newspapers shut down every two weeks. I mean, it's just crazy. And that's where a lot of people get their news and get really good stories. I mean, Sammy Roth at the LA Times luckily is still there. He's amazing. He's a great climate reporter. Um, and I'm and I'm glad to see that there there's so many other folks out there reporting Bloomberg, E&E News, um, David Roberts, of course, with Volts, and and of course Latitude, which I call uh, L apostrophe attitude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that Latitude has great reporters. I mean, you guys are doing great. But I just um, you know I, I I look at these papers and all the trouble they're having, and I just hope that people still. Invest the, the way you the way that you get streaming services for TV. Continue to invest in our good reporting because we desperately need that to be able to tell stories about climate and to tell stories about clean tech and investment and all the things we talk about and you talk about every day, um, Shalini and Stephen. So I wanted to just raise that up as something we need to pay attention to. Oh. Definitely. I mean, as a media professional, this is certainly something I'm thinking about a lot. And as someone who has recently co-founded a media brand, we made an explicit choice to be really strict niche B2B journalism because you have a much closer connection with your audience. You can create research and live events that get people to interact with what you're doing. And some of these sort of mid-sized news organizations have been hollowed out because they don't have a close connection with their um, listeners, readers, viewers, and they've seen advertising um, move over to social media platforms. And so there's this barbell effect in media right now where you have a few very large news organizations that have really good digital offerings, really good subscription services like the New York Times that invested heavily in digital offerings pretty early on and are succeeding wildly. And then at the other end, you have individuals who are doing really well on Substack, niche media brands where people have a really close connection with the, the journalists and the folks that are running those media groups. And the the media organizations in the middle are doing really, really poorly. Um, and just to borrow from some of the analysis that's been out there about this recent bloodbath in the media ecosystem, I mean, it's, it's sort of started with the era of the Internet when a lot of publications actually put their news online for free. 
not realizing that many people were going to consume it. And then people got used to not actually paying for news. <laughs> uh, and then social media came along and sucked up all the classified ads. They sucked up all the advertising, local advertising that um, uh, newspapers and radio stations relied on. And so they lost that massive revenue stream. And uh, and then once those a lot of those media organizations were struggling, you had a lot of private equity firms that came in and bought up a bunch of local newspapers and hollowed them out because they didn't see good journalists. What they saw were printing presses, real estate, things that they could sell off. And then when the organization was completely hollowed out, they could declare bankruptcy and they'd already made their money back. And so private equity's role in the news business has actually been a really big story in causing some of these problems. And then, of course, you have some of the billionaires who've bought newspapers that don't know how to run them and they do it for prestige. And so it's a really complicated problem with a deep history over the last two decades. But it's, I mean, I'm so glad you brought it up because it's something I think about every day. <laughs> wow, Stephen, I'm glad you could explain it back to me. Thank you. <laughs> well, that wasn't mansplaining, was it? No, no, that was great. That was great. <laughs> Shalini, any thoughts, given that your husband is in the news business? I think I think you described it perfectly. I think we. what's ironic to me is that all of us, I think, consume more news than ever before. It's not like the consumption or interest in the news has dropped off. I mean, sometimes, you know, it can be, um, um, it can take a little discipline, right, to, to read about the war in Ukraine when it isn't going well, which is right now. Um, but at the same time, on the whole, I feel like, you know, people care about the news and are engaged, but we don't think about the fact that it takes people with mortgages and kids and all that to go gather the news. And um, I'm amazed at how... Um, it had the role of local newspapers, uh, where my husband works at the Houston Chronicle, it, the role of newspapers in gathering the info that then, you know, you hear about on talk shows and on social media and, you know, the, you know all of that. But the, the, the original reporting is done by entities that we're not supporting. Absolutely. Most of the content that is out there is borrowed from a small number of rigorous journalistic outfits that are often not getting the funding they need. So it's a real problem. Um, okay, well, well, I could go on and on about this, but let's, <laughs> let's turn to your story, Shalini. Uh, what is your forecast? So my forecast is that I think we're having good and useful discussions about EVs, uh, electric vehicles. Um, there was a, a cold snap, uh, you know, earlier uh, earlier this month, and uh, there were a lot of news stories about you know Tesla chargers not working and people waiting in line to charge their cars or having to charge much more often than they had planned on, and you know that felt like it was um, not a great moment for the the EV industry. But now I'm seeing more discussion around you know how do you prepare for this? Like the same way that if you know a, a cold front is coming, if you know a storm is coming, you know, you get water, you have some food in case the power goes out. You know, there's some practical preparation, cover your faucets, of course, and make sure your pets and plants are safe. There's also some things you can do, you know, with your EV. You can, uh, before you start driving, you can turn on the, the heat and like having a warm car, um, you know, helps the battery perform better. You obviously will need to charge more often. Um, so maybe planning for that, you know, it, is good. And we're building out more charging networks. 
work. So I think that's encouraging as well. Um, and, you know, making sure that when you're done driving, that you're not leaving it with a low battery because it drains down very quickly. Um, so there's some there's some things that we can do um, to cope with cold weather. And I just want to point out that extreme weather causes interruption in all kinds of infrastructure. You know, we've had disruptions where, you know, there are long lines of gas stations, you know, because uh, there was a, you know, a flood or, um, or a storm. So I think that just, um, I'm glad to see that the discussion around, you know, EV winter preparedness is, is now a thing. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned it. I, I've been getting in. Uh, we we leased another EV uh, over the new year, and um, you know, I got in. It was like, yo, you're not getting as far as you think you are because it's cold. <laughs> so yeah, I'm like, oh, right. okay. But this is good. Good to know. These are really good tips, and I'm glad you brought it up. Well, I have a quick update to a major story that got a lot of attention into the end of last year, and that is the impact of America's liquefied natural gas exports and what the Biden administration is going to do about them. So um, under the Biden administration, we saw the massive build-out and approval of LNG facilities to send more gas over to Europe in particular. And environmentalists started taking a look at this and saying, wait a second, um, are we just exporting our emissions now to Europe. And uh, there were a couple of studies, um, non, they were not peer-reviewed studies, but there were a couple of studies looking at the potential impact, uh, emissions impact. One of them came from uh, Bob Holworth from Cornell, who has done a bunch of peer-reviewed research comparing the emissions impact of gas when factoring in methane leakage uh, to coal and found that uh, gas was, in fact, not cleaner than coal and, in fact, potentially dirtier than coal. And so he took a look at what it takes to store and ship gas and found that we, if all terminals that are being proposed by companies in the U.S. are built, we could be adding the emissions equivalent of Europe. It's a big deal. Environmentalists rallied around it and put pressure on the Biden administration to pause many of these new terminals that are being proposed, um, particularly one called CP2, which is would be the second biggest uh, LNG export terminal on the Gulf Coast. And there are two bodies that approve uh, permits for liquefied natural gas under the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and under the Department of Energy. You know, if FERC approves a facility, a company can build a terminal and then sell that gas to free trade partners. But the, the Department of Energy can give authority for broader sales of that liquefied natural gas, but it has to evaluate national security concerns, potential uh, economic impact, and environmentalists are saying you should be evaluating environmental impact. And so the Biden administration this month said, we are going to put a pause on these new facilities and take a look at the impact on pricing and the impact on the climate. So that's a big deal. It's the first time the DOE has ever done this and um, definitely a big win for those concerned about these LNG facilities. Um, and who knows what's going to come next because this is going to be like a three-month pause, I think. Catherine, any thoughts on how this is playing out in Washington and what the pause could look like? Ooh, I can. I know there are a lot of people going to be very angry about that, <laughs> um, including Chairman Manchin of Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Um, I think you know, the initial push for it was so predicated on trying to get the EU off of Russian gas. I mean, that is a real issue, right? So part of it was let's let's get the gas from the US rather than from 
Russia. So that's been it's been a national security argument um, for a little while now, and I think that's what people are continuing to hang their hats on. But honestly, the emissions piece is huge, and we have to take that into consideration. So I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, certainly in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when gas supplies were really tight and Europe was in a genuine crisis, this made sense. But when people stepped back, when we saw that Europe had enough gas, suddenly the emissions impact became really critical. And one study, again, not a peer-reviewed study, found that if all these terminals were built, we could wipe out all U.S. emissions gains from the last couple of decades. So this is a big deal and certainly a big deal politically as well. So we'll see what the DOE does. I think that's going to close it out. Shalini Ramanathan of Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners, thank you. Thank you. This was fun. You want to come back and do it monthly? I do. All right. We're in. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North, thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to see you all next month. I promise not to AI clone your voice. And that's it for the show. The Carbon Copy is a production of Latitude Media. The show is produced by me and Sean Marquand, who is also our technical director. He mixes the show and he wrote our theme song. You can get all our stories, show notes, and transcripts at latitudemedia.com. And Latitude supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy. Learn more about their portfolio and investment strategy at preludeventures.com. And give us a shout out on X if you uh, have thoughts about what we talked about here. We have some takes. We want your takes. And you can also connect with us on LinkedIn or wherever you're active on these issues. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Carbon Copy. Mm-hmm.